You're listening to Better Fishing with Two Bald Biologists, sponsored by the North Carolina Wildlife Resources Commission. I'm Corey Oakley, the Assistant Chief of Fisheries Management for the Inland Fisheries Division. And I'm Ben Ricks, Coastal Region Fisheries Supervisor. We are fisheries biologists who are avid anglers. We want to link the work we do as biologists to your fishing. Our goal in this podcast is to use the information we have as an agency to help you catch more fish and learn about our state's great aquatic natural resources. Okay, well, we appreciate you guys listening in. This is our very first podcast, so bear with us. We're not going to do it perfect the first time through. As you heard, I'm Ben Ricks, and I have Corey Oakley here. What's up? And today, we are going to talk about striped bass fishing, and in particular, we're going to talk about the Roanoke River striped bass fishery, which is a huge, very popular fishery. People come from all over the state, all over the country to fish it, and we also have Jeremy McCargo here today. Hey, Ben. Thanks for having me. What's up, Jeremy? How are you doing? Doing well. Good to see you. Glad you're here. Jeremy, you want to introduce yourself? Sure. I'm a Anadromous Research Coordinator for the Wildlife Resources Commission. I work here in the Raleigh office, but um, spend a lot of time in the spring on the Roanoke River sampling striped bass. I also run the Creel Survey, where we talk to anglers at the boat ramp to uh, get an idea of what they're catching and estimate harvest. So tell me what anadromous means for all those out there in radio land that don't know what that is. Well, anadromous is a fancy word for migratory, where fish spend the majority of their life in either the ocean or salty environment in the estuary and migrate upstream to spawn, typically in the spring. Common example is salmon fisheries out west in the Pacific Ocean, but we have several species that migrate in the spring to freshwater to spawn in North Carolina. And those species are striped bass, which is our topic for today, as well as American shad, hickory shad, and the two river herring species that we have. Cool deal. So Jeremy, since we got you on here, what makes the Roanoke River fishery striped bass. So what makes it special? Well, Roanoke River striped bass have been migrating from the Albemarle Sound and Atlantic Ocean to the spawning grounds on the upper Roanoke River near Weldon in Roanoke Rapids, North Carolina, for many, many years. And fishermen have been partaking in that spawning run to catch those fish and really enjoy being on the river at a time when there are a lot of fish in a small area where they can have great success catching striped bass. And the town of Weldon, and, and actually I think it was the state legislature, dubbed the town of Weldon the rockfish capital of the world because of the popularity of the fishery there. Jeremy, do you fish for striped bass at all? I fish for striped bass from time to time. I'm not there too often on a personal boat. In fact, I, I had to get rid of my personal boat a few years ago. But, but yeah, I have fished for striped bass on the Roanoke a few times, but I do spend a lot of time on the electrofishing boat where we sample striped bass to get biological information to help us manage the fishery. So if you had to pick one bait to fish for stripers, what would you use? I think the uh, most effective bait is a live bait. That is the, the most common bait we see anglers use on the river, a live herring that's caught from the reservoir and uh, kept alive on the boat, but on a single hook. is very effective to catch striped bass on the spawning grounds. And again, that when we run our creel survey, Ben, you know, as you know, we collect data on what baits the fishermen are using. And, um, you know, over half of the fishermen use live bait, especially in the upper river. Sure, sure. Corey, what do you like to use to catch stripers with? I'm a swim bait kind of guy. Swim bait. Of all kinds, shapes, sizes, depending on what I'm going for. I also like the roadrunner. That's what I grew up fishing with was the roadrunner. 
Loved a chartreuse and white Roadrunner. Used it forever. Still use it. So those are kind of my favorites. I like it, Roadrunner. For myself, I'd have to say that that I'm a fluke guy. Just about everybody that knows me knows I love fishing a fluke, and I learned how to fish it. Do you have anything else in your box no. other than a fluke? Because that seems to be all you ever fish with is a fluke. Well, when I learned to fish for stripers with artificial, the fluke was my mainstay, so it's hard it to go It is a good home. bait, for sure. So Jeremy talked about why the Roanoke River striped bass fishery was unique. And I want to take just a minute to tell folks why I think it's unique. And it's because I'm from Roanoke Rapids right there, just down the road. I was walking distance from this river growing up. I grew up fishing for these fish. At one point, I was kind of a local legend because I caught one of the the original big fish, a 41-pounder. And it was on live bait. So there that goes. But also, my interest in this fishery also spurred my interest not only in becoming a fisherman, but also in becoming a fish biologist. And I love natural resources. I'm very passionate about conservation. But really, the reason why I became a fish biologist is because I wanted to figure out how to catch more fish. Yeah, that's right. And the striped bass fishery in Roanoke Rapids and Weldon was really kind of what piqued my initial interest and hooked me on fish biology, conservation, because, you know, in my mind, I said, well, if I learn more about these fish, then I'll be able to catch more. And so that was kind of how I first cut my teeth on fishery science was as an angler, as a young angler, just trying to learn how I could find out as much information as I could and figure out if there were way through knowledge that I could catch more. And in some ways that worked and in other ways it didn't. So, so my question is like, I know that you know, it's mainly a live bait fishery on the Roanoke. I've fished it several times, been down, I go about once or twice a year. I go striper fishing there. My question is, can you artificially bait fish that river for stripers? I mean, do people do that consistently or is it just primarily a live bait fishery? I really don't know because, I mean, every time I've been, I've always used live bait. That's what I've done because that's kind of what everybody else does. I grew up using live bait, as Jeremy said, and we collect that data from the creel who uses live bait, who uses artificial, but it's definitely, you know, if you can't find live bait, you can still find fish to catch out there with, you know, mostly, and Jeremy can probably add to this a little bit, but most of the striper's diet is shad or something white and silvery. They tend to do that. So, you know, swim bait, live bait, a fluke style bait are all very effective lures to, uh, to catch stripers. Jeremy, you got anything to add to that? Yeah, I think the live bait anglers are more prevalent during the harvest season. So when the season is open to harvest fish, we see a lot more live bait anglers. And later in the season, when that season goes out and it's strictly catch and release, we'll see a lot more people fishing with artificial lures. And, you know, in the last 10 to 15 years, there's been a fair number of fly rod fishermen as well, fishing, you know, small artificial flies. That tends to be more popular again in May when the harvest season has gone out. There are some anglers that are also dedicated to the topwater bite, especially after the fish have spawned, they tend to chase bait on top and they'll get out there early in the morning and throw zarespooks and other topwater lures and, and they can have good success. And topwater fishing, in my opinion, is one of the most fun ways to catch fish. Absolutely. See that strike on the surface and, and those guys have figured out how to do that as well. So, you know, as far as the data goes, I, I'm a data head. I like to look at our data and analyze the surveys that we take and really the artificial bait 
comes on after the harvest season goes out. Yeah, my brother really got into the topwater bite in the late season last year. And one of the reasons why there's certain baits that folks use over others is because there's a single barbless hook rule on the river there. And I, I just wanted to take a minute, and Jeremy, you want to explain why there's a single barbless hook? And that also dictates what lures, what baits you choose to use as an artificial fisherman as well. Right. So we have a single barbless hook rule that requires single barbless hooks to be used either for live bait or artificial lures. And that rule is in place to reduce catch and release injury and mortality. I mean, you know, folks can go to the Roanoke River and catch 40, 50 striped bass in a day uh, on a good day. And we want to encourage the best practices to release those fish safely so they're able to swim away and live to bite another hook and live to spawn another year. So that barbless hook rule really allows you to take a fish off the hook very easily. And also, you know, we don't see any treble hook use for the most part, but some artificial lures, like you mentioned, Ben, you know, come standard with two treble hooks. And those treble hooks can be really injurious to a fish. You know, if those hooks go in the gills, and the cause bleeding and, and things that, that are going to injure a fish. So we do not want to see people using treble hooks on live bait rigs or on artificial lures. So that's the primary focus of that rule is to really reduce injury and provide the fish a chance to survive after they're released. It's important, I think, for folks to kind of put it in perspective. You know, I mean, we're talking about the opportunity for large numbers of fish, and we're also talking about a lot of action fast, furious. I mean, whether you're live baiting or fishing a jig or what have you, you've really got a, a good opportunity at the right time of year to have a hundred fish a day, right, Jeremy? Yeah, certainly on a boat. You know, if you got a couple of guys fishing, two or three guys fishing there, they routinely will tell us they caught 75 to hundred fish in a day between the three people fishing, two or three people. Occasionally, a, a really experienced fisherman might go and catch a hundred fish per person, but usually it's 25 to 30 fish per person is an amazing day. Sure. That's an amazing day in anybody's book, I think. So we just want to encourage that those fish are released quickly and safely. And that barbless hook helps them do that. In fact, you know, Ben, a couple of years ago now, I fished the Roanoke with a constituent of ours, and he produced a video for us. And it's on our website where we were fishing gulp baits on barbless circle hooks under corks. And we released every single one of those fish without taking the fish out of the water. He used a de-hooker tool, uh, bent down to the water, slid the tool down the line, and popped the hook right out of the fish's mouth without even touching the fish or removing the fish from the water. And those fish, you know, swam away with no injury. And that circle hook was important, too, because the circle hooks tend to catch the fish in the corner of the mouth and reduces deep hooking and, again, reduces more injury to the fish. And you know, those barbless circle hooks for live bait especially can be really, really helpful to reduce the injury and give a better chance of survival when you release that fish. So I'm going to put my fish biologist hat on for a minute and talk a little bit. Well, you need a hat. You're bald. That's true. I have zero hair. Zero yeah, hair. Me either. Right. Even Jeremy is, he's got more than me, but it's Man, it's Jeremy's fading. still holding on to a little bit, but it's slowly fading away for him. If you do good today, maybe we'll change it to three bald okay, biologists. Yeah. So. But to get back to the topic at hand, you know, if you're going to catch 100 fish a day and if you do hook a few fish deep or something like that, you may say, well, that fish is fine. But if standard 6 to 10% mortality rate is what most fish biologists put on catch and release fishing, and if there's 50, 60 boats or 100 boats or more out there, that discard adds up over time. 
And kind of what Jeremy's saying is that, you know, even though we think we're doing the best, if we're catching release fishermen, we still have an impact on that fishery. And it's important for us to understand that and try to minimize that hook and mortality as best we can. And you don't have to buy barbless hooks. You can just take a pair of pliers and bend the barb down. So there's not really any additional expense associated with this rule. It's just a way to try to keep the fishing pressure on these fish at a minimum so that we can continue to enjoy them in future years. And I would also add to that, put my biologist hat on because I'm bald as well. You know, as water temperature increases with striped bass, it's even more important to handle them correctly because we all know that as that temperature goes up, their mortality goes up too when they get caught and released. So definitely about protecting the resource over, over a period of time so that we can enjoy them later on. Sure. Jeremy talked about how they were catching them and just kind of popping them yeah. off right at the boat. But if you do want to take a picture, and I think you should take a picture of a yes. striper, especially if it's your first one or your biggest one of the day or something or like that. Or if it weighs 50 pounds. Or if, or, it, yeah, or yeah. if it's a monster, you should definitely take a picture and send it to us at Two Bald Biologists. Absolutely. I mean, I don't know how we post a picture on a, on a podcast, but, you know. We'll get it on the webpage. We can describe it to them. You know, it's really large. Right. We'll get yeah. it on the webpage. We'd love to share that with everybody. But... Have that camera ready, have your ruler ready, have everything out so that you can minimize, especially if you're not keeping any fish that day, minimize the amount of time that fish is out of the water and get them back in as quick as possible. The worst thing is, is to catch a fish, not have the net out, not have the scale out, not have the camera ready. I do that a lot. So I I know how that is. I'm not prepared when I actually catch a fish. Maybe that's because I don't think I'm going to catch one when I go. But I felt like you were describing an opportunity where you and I were on the boat together Last spring. Uh, yes, I believe that would be the case. <laughs> so, yeah, so that, that kind of gets at the catch and release and the hook restrictions that are on the Roanoke. Jeremy, you got anything to add to that? Are we good with that? The biggest things that we always tell anglers is, you know, use the right tackle. Don't want to go out there with an ultralight spinning rod and, and spend three hours trying to land a fish. Use a decent-sized rod and line that you can land that fish pretty quickly. Again, have your nets and tools ready to release the fish. And also, again, when that water temperature and the air temperature starts to get really warm, you, know, you really just need to keep that fish in the water when you catch the fish. That's the best thing to encourage survival of that fish is to keep it in the water and, and don't pull it out and let it flop around your boat. There's really you know, not a need for that. Once you've taken a picture, once you've caught a few fish, you know, enjoy the fight and return the fish to fight another day. And I'd add, that's true for all fish, not just stripers. Yeah, so, yeah, absolutely. Know, what's good for the goose is definitely good for the gander on this one. So. Yeah. Hmm, hadn't heard that in a while. There you go. There you go. So, Jeremy, why are all the fish at Weldon? We kind of touched on it, but why are they there? They are there to spawn. So, they're on their annual spawning run. Striped bass swim from the Albemarle Sound up the Roanoke River every year in, in March and April to spawn. They, they typically spawn the last week of April or the first week of May is usually the peak of spawning. And they are there, you know, to release eggs and fertilize eggs and, and make more stripers for the next year. That's their, their annual event. So how far from Weldon down do they go? I mean, how far are their spawning grounds? Are they right there at Weldon? Are they further down? Like, give us a description about how big the spawning grounds are. Sure. The spawning grounds are about a 15 to 20 mile section of river, I would say, from Halifax up to the dam at Roanoke Rapids Lake. And the fish will occupy different portions of those spawning ground habitat depending on the water levels. So anybody that's been on the Roanoke much knows that it can fluctuate from 
flood conditions with really high swift water to drought conditions where you can hardly float a boat because the water's shallow and there's lots of rocks and boulders around the Weldon area. So when we get high flows, the fish will move further up towards the dam. And when flows are lower, they'll drop back and even spawn around Halifax and even down to Scotland Neck. I've seen spawning fights occur just upstream of the boat ramp at Edwards Ferry. So they're not all packed at the boat ramp at Weldon? They're not all packed there, but that seems to be where the bulk of the fish hang out from just upstream of the boat ramp at Weldon down past Big Rock and and even down a little farther. But it's still a concentrated area where the fish want to be to spawn. So from a fishing standpoint, I think that's one of the things that makes this so neat is that you can come from out of town and basically put in at the ramp and start drifting. And there's very few things when I'm bass fishing, if I could limit my search to 10 mile stretch of river, that'd be great. And that's exactly what we have here with stripers is all the fish are going to be in one fairly confined area. So they're easy to find, easy to be productive. If they're biting, you can do really well. So it really allows for folks for a high level of success. And I think that's what's given this fishery so much popularity. Absolutely. So we've kind of covered a little bit of it, but Jeremy, if you would talk to us, it wasn't always like this, you know, in the early 70s, things were kind of tough for striped bass. So kind of walk us through striped bass management and kind of recent history of what's going on and go back as far as you want to. I think some of the older facts about the Roanoke River are pretty impressive as well. Yeah, I mean, in the 70s, I think the population was at a low point. We had several issues going on that that caused a decline in the population. And there was some water quality issues where there were some pollutants being put into the river that were causing striped bass to not successfully reproduce during that time frame. And also there were issues with the flow of the river. So as I mentioned, you know, the fish can swim all the way to Roanoke Rapids Dam and the flows can fluctuate greatly because of because of Car Dam and how it releases water. And also the uh, Roanoke Rapids Dam, which is operated by Dominion Energy, can control the flow of the water in the river on the spawning grounds. And there was a period of time where uh, those flow conditions weren't conducive to successful spawning, and the population declined because of that. After years of bad habitat and bad flows, and also over-harvest, there was a lot of harvest going on. You know, the striped bass population in the Albemarle Sound and Roanoke River supports a large recreational fishery as well as a commercial fishery in the Albemarle Sound. And back in the 60s and 70s, it was relatively unregulated. The harvest was pretty high on striped bass, and it focused a lot on small fish that were sexually immature. And so that was a recipe for population decline with poor habitat conditions and overfishing. You know, we saw a big reduction in the numbers of striped bass that were in the population. So going from there, the folks that came before us that were in our positions before us, as well as Division of Marine Fisheries staff, really looked at the data, looked at what the habitat requirements needed to be to provide successful spawning. And it's really a success story of how agency staff, industry, and anglers cooperated to rebuild a fishery. Harvest was cut severely. We started managing the population or the harvest of the population with a quota. Harvest quotas were set for individual fisheries, and we put in season lengths and we put in length limits to help fish grow to maturity. And we saw the population start to rebound 
in the 90s, we started seeing better recruitment and large year classes were being produced. And subsequently, the population was declared recovered in, in 1997. And it grew from there even. That's when we started really seeing those bigger, older, mature fish show up on the spawning grounds for the first time in a very long time. Uh, you know, Ben, you said you mentioned catching one of the first 40 pounders that anyone had seen in the river. And I mean, when was that? It was probably in the mid 90s, right? Or late 90s? Late 90s. Yep. And that's when we started seeing those older fish grow. You know, striped bass can live to 30 years old if they're allowed to. And in that time period when the population was really low, you know, most of the fish were two to three years old and just not living to their full potential. And we saw that increase through the 2000s to one of the probably the highest numbers that had been recorded during times when scientific data was being collected on the population. And since then, we've seen the population decrease a bit. We're at another low point right now, primarily because of harvest on that stock. The regulations were greatly declined or what am I trying to say? We, we harvested a lot of fish because we thought we had a lot of fish and we increased the quota and we started to take a lot of fish. And at the same time, we started to see some poor recruitment occur again, where we weren't replenishing those fish that we were taking fast enough because natural recruitment and reproduction was being decreased. So explain to us, I mean, for the people listening, what does recruitment mean to you? And really, why are we having poor recruitment now? I mean, we've gotten to another low point, right? So yep. we've gone through the 70s, we made this big climb up high, and now we've dropped back down again. So why are we here? Well, first of all, recruitment is the introduction of new fish into the population. So, and that's from natural spawning. We haven't stocked the Roanoke River and Albemarle Sound since the mid-90s. In the late 90s, I think, was the last time we actually put fish in there. And even then, it wasn't a whole lot. No, yet, so. that yeah. was only a, actually a few thousand fish a year. So recruitment is new fish entering the population, and we typically say that happens when they're about one year old. So the fish reproduce, the eggs mature, hatch, and the fish grow, and then they recruit to the population at about their first year. The success of the spawn is really dependent upon river flow. The eggs require moving water, so they stay suspended in the river and don't settle out on the bottom. So in years where we, we used to have really low flow events because there was lack of regulation of the flows from the dam, those eggs would settle out and die. Uh, we'd get poor recruitment. Lately, though, we've had high water. We've had lots of rain in the spring, which has caused the need for flood control flows. And when that happens, we think the eggs get deposited in the floodplain where there's low oxygen levels and the eggs and fry don't survive when they're out in the floodplain because of the flow condition, the high flows. Gotcha. So you're saying that getting down in the weeds, Ben, I apologize for that. I think it's helpful, though. So the eggs are fertilized there on the spawning grounds at Weldon. So if it floats for three days, where's that egg ending up? Do you, yeah, I know it's flow dependent. I get that. But just in general, can you describe where that would be in the river? Yeah, they typically hatch in the average water temperature of when they're spawning. The eggs will hatch in about two days. So they drift down the water for 48 hours typically. And that usually puts them in that Hamilton to Williamston range of the river where they're hatching, the eggs hatch, and then the fry continue to drift downriver. And it's really amazing how the fish have evolved to hatch as they go down the river and the fry are deposited at the mouth of the river near Plymouth where it enters into Albemarle Sound into the rich estuarine waters there. 
And that's where the fry are delivered from the river. And then they can grow from there in that estuarine environment, which is low salinity, low flow, and high productivity in most years. And that allows them to grow and, and develop pretty rapidly in a good environment where there's lots of food and good conditions to grow. Cool. So now going back, now that we know what recruitment is and what they're doing, so why are we here? Why are we to another low point in the river with striped bass? Mm-hmm. Well, it boils down to low recruitment and harvesting too many fish. Our electrofishing surveys have also showed a decrease in those older fish. You know, in the 2000s, we saw 9, 10, 12-year-old fish start showing up. And, you know, we were getting fish 17, 18 years old that had been produced in those 90s years when we had really severe harvest restrictions and we were producing good year classes. So those fish lived a long time, lived to be 15, 20 years old. We saw those. And then those fish started being harvested in the ocean as well as dying naturally, I think. But we weren't replacing those older fish either because we opened up harvest a bit too much. And so now we don't see a big numbers of those large, mature females that can deposit a lot of eggs. Yeah, I think that's an important distinction. And Jeremy said it earlier, one of the issues is flow, but one of the issues is the fact that we've overfished to the point where we've depressed the larger, older size class of fish. So, you know, Jeremy said earlier, there's a lot of fish and it's hard for some folks to get their heads around, well, why is all these restrictions if there's a lot of fish out there? That's probably our biggest complaint from anglers and stakeholders is that when we go out to the Roanoke River, we're catching fish 150 a day left and right. So, And the issue is, yes, there's a lot of fish out there, but we're missing those big females that are really driving reproduction. And so I think, I think that's an important distinction when we're talking about striped bass conservation and striped bass management is, sure, you can go out there and catch a bunch of fish. I mean, when, when I was a kid... In the 80s, we caught plenty of fish, but they weren't doing very well. But all those fish were shoved into that one little box right there at Weldon, too. So, of course, we did well. We saw all of them, you know, and that's kind of what's going on here. So, I think it's interesting, but the amazing thing is how it responded in the 90s and how we brought it back. Yeah, absolutely. Jeremy, what's the potential? I know there's some historical records of larger fish. What's maybe the potential for the Roanoke River to produce? Well, the you know, largest known striped bass from the Albemarle Sound area is over 100 pounds. I'm not sure we'll see that again because there's really no telling how old that fish was. It was probably 40 or 50 years old would be my guess. But in the peak period of large adult fish, we would routinely see 40 and 50 pound fish. And so there's certainly potential to get those back. So how old is that fish? A 40, 50-pound fish on average. They're at least 20 years old, probably more like 21 to 25 years old. That's really what we're looking for to return to the spawning grounds. I mean, I know we would take 12, 15-pound fish too, but... Yeah, once they get to that kind of 20-pound range, which is going to be in the range of like 36 inches, that's when they really start, really increase their amount of eggs that they release per body weight, basically. Yeah. So, and usually those fish are 10 years old. So once we get those 10-year-old fish, they start to be in the, releasing the millions of eggs per female. So would you say the take-home about, just about where we are is that basically we don't have, we don't have those larger, older fish there. So therefore our egg production is pretty low. And then we got environmental conditions such as spring floods that are causing 
any eggs that are there to have a hard time surviving. That's right. And it's a combination of both yeah. of those factors. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I want to reel us in for a second because my timekeeper, Ryan, here is telling us we're, we're getting a little long in the tooth. Before we let them t- cut us off completely, we want information from the public. We want to answer your questions. We want this to be a useful place to get information for the public. And I want to address a few of the questions that we've heard. And if I run a little long, maybe he'll be okay with that. But let's answer a couple of them real quick. I also want to introduce the idea that you guys are more than welcome to email us at twobaldbiologists at ncwildlife.org for topic ideas. If you have a question, anything along those lines, if we don't have the answer, we will send it to someone who does and try to get it for you. If that's not possible, we'll tell you we don't know the answer because I don't know everything. You don't know everything? I don't know everything. Neither do I. So... Yeah, no, I mean, that's one of the reasons for this podcast is to get information out, but also to hear from our anglers as well. Right. And we want to give you guys information that y'all want and will use. Exactly. With the first one, let's talk a little bit. And I've heard this multiple times from multiple different folks. You know, we're in the middle of some of the most restrictive regulations that we've ever had on the Roanoke River, for example. And I hear folks say, well, once something's taken away, we never, ever get it back. And Jeremy, is this true? No, it's not true. I mean, we, you know, back in the 80s, we put size limits on fish. We reduced the numbers that you could keep. We cut a quota really far down. And as the population rebounded, we increased the quota and we allowed more harvest. We allowed more days of harvest in the river. There will be a lot of folks that remember, you know, three-day harvest windows for only a couple weeks in the season. And that was to keep the harvest poundage down to that manageable level to allow some harvest, but allow most of the fish to stay in the river so they could spawn. But as the population rebounded, like I said, we increased the season length. We gave them more days, went to seven days, and then we went to, you know, essentially two months of a harvest season in March and April in the Roanoke River and had two fish a day. So we certainly will reopen harvest to more opportunities as the population responds to the reduction in harvest right now. So we're not going to take it away forever. And we're probably, if we can turn the fishery around, would, if the biology allowed us to, we would open it up just as we have in the past. Similarly. Yeah. I mean, you know, we set the harvest quota based on what the data tells us about the population status and the health of the population. And as our data tells us, the population is rebounding. We can rerun our assessments and allow for a harvest of more fish to give that opportunity back to the angler. So you talk about data and what data gives us. We hear a lot and we've heard online from time to time that the data you collect is not what we see and you're coming at the wrong time of the year to collect data. Kind of give us a time frame of when you're doing your krill surveys and when you're doing electrofishing surveys to kind of give the folks out there an understanding of when we are actually there. Those are two important surveys that we use to collect data on the striped bass population in the Roanoke River. The creel survey starts March 1st and runs through the middle of May. That's when the fish typically enter the river. And it is a survey. It's not a census. We're not interviewing every single angler fishing everywhere every day because that's physically impossible. So we design the survey around statistical methods that allow us to estimate harvest based on who we talk to on those days. And so we randomize what boat ramps we survey, where we survey, 
and we randomize what days we're out there working. And that gives us a overview of all the effort and all the catch and all the harvest that occurs. And then we have to make estimates from there. The electrofishing survey runs from about the second week of April to the middle of May again, so about a month, sometimes six weeks. We're only out there one day a week because the fish are there. They're continually moving in and out of the spawning grounds, and we want to follow that spawning run to collect the data on the population. But we start maybe sometimes before the fish get there, and then we survey them through the time they're there, and then we stay until they're gone. Yeah, so basically you're trying to survey for the entire run, basically, is what you're trying to get. You're trying to get the beginning of the run, the peak of the run, and and towards the tail end to make sure you get the entire population or a view of the entire That's population. That's right. And we also designed that survey to sample in random spots throughout the spawning grounds area so that we're not focusing just on one school of fish. We're getting a good idea of how the fish are spread out or concentrated within that spawning area. And we don't just sit and and sample one school of fish, and that would artificially inflate our numbers. Because as the population grows, there's more fish spread out throughout the spawning grounds. Sure. So for people that want to be science nerds like us, I guess I'm a science nerd. We all are. Yeah, we're all science nerds. How do you get that information from us? What's the best way to, to get survey data from you, like, you know, reports and those kinds of things? How can they obtain that? We generally summarize our data and analyze our data annually. So each year we produce a report of some kind. Sometimes it's a a small summary of the data we collected that year. Sometimes it's a bigger report where we go into in-depth analysis. And those reports are usually available on our website, ncewildlife.org, on the fishing page. And so you can find survey reports and the data that we collect there. We also work with Division of Marine Fisheries to analyze the data on the full stock-wide assessment. So all of our data have gone into the stock assessment through the fisheries management plan process that we're undergoing right now. And those data are available on Division of Marine Fisheries website as well. Cool. All right. Well, Ryan now has his shepherd's crook out and he's about to pull the plug. So with that, I'm going to ask you guys if you have questions, email us. If you have topic ideas, email us. Let us be a tool for you guys to use. And we're looking forward to talking to you in the future. Thanks. Thanks, y'all. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening in to North Carolina Wildlife Resources Commission's Talking Fishing with Two Bald Biologists podcast. If you would like more information, please visit us online at ncwildlife.org. If you have questions or topic suggestions, shoot us an email at twobaldbiologists at ncwildlife.org. 